0: Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today I've got a special guest, Christian Hyatt from RISC360, and we're going to talk about compliance and some of his business model ideas and what I think is incredibly interesting, the CISO archetypes. So we're going to discuss those, and you can try to figure out where you fit into those models. As always, if you please follow us on LinkedIn and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any updates. So anyway, Christian, welcome to our virtual studios.
1: Hey, Dubarks. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So tell me a little bit about yourself. I mean, we've already talked once before, but uh, for our audience, you know, who are you, where you come from, what do you do, and, and what gets you excited?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm the CEO and co-founder of a company called Risk360. We do We build out security programs. We do security assessments. Before that, I spent fairly long career in public accounting. I was in like a cybersecurity advisory piece of the business, but I always wanted to start a business. So did an MBA at Georgia Tech here in Atlanta, uh, used that as a good launch point to start a business, and then took the leap and been uh, doing RISC 360 for the last six years, helping companies build security programs.
0: That's pretty cool. Now, one of the things I want to talk about is that leap from you know kind of where you were to where you are now. And... I guess maybe that now's a good time to get into that. You know, forget our agenda. We'll just kind of roll with it. So, when you started doing your initial work, what got you into cybersecurity in the first place? Did you just kind of like get a degree in it? Did you kind of back into it? What was what was your intro?
1: It's kind of funny. So I didn't grow up with a lot of technology or anything. I I wouldn't have considered myself an IT person. I went to University of Georgia uh, for undergrad, and they do this seminar class where the different degree programs get to pitch your degree path. And Management Information Systems was one of the schools in the business school. And their pitch was, this was at the Great Recession. They said, look, we have the highest placement after college into jobs, and we have the highest starting salary in the business program. And, and that perked my ears up. And then I met some of the professors, and then uh, eventually got a, a genuine interest and what they were teaching and the bridge between technology and business. And I could see into the future and see that, you know, this business and technology thing, that's, that's the future. And got really excited about it. Then uh, when I left college, I wanted to be a consultant because I think everybody wants to be a consultant when they are in college. Went to a public accounting firm and they told me I was going to be a consultant, but what was emerging in the market at that time was cybersecurity. So somehow I got put on a really big cybersecurity consulting project, and I became the cybersecurity guy. So I was staffed all over the nation on compliance projects like SOC 2 or cybersecurity assessments, and I just acquired all of this, uh, I guess, know-how and subject matter expertise around cybersecurity. Did my career there, but in the back of my head, I always wanted to start a business. Uh, that was my end game. I always joke it could have been a taco stand, a coffee shop. I really didn't care. I just wanted to start a business. So I was always looking for opportunities to do that went to the MBA program at Georgia Tech because they have like an entrepreneurial program there and then built out a business model. I met my business partner Christian White there and then launched really as just a one-man consulting firm and uh accumulated projects and eventually built out a business model doing security assessments doing different types of certifications. We built out a SaaS platform called Phalanx and now we're at about 50 people and and it's just kind of you look back and you're like man that was a journey and suddenly we're here, but that's, that's the long story, I guess.
0: Well, it's interesting though, because a lot of people i talk talked to have, as you said, you you mentioned two aspirations, which they may be for everybody. They might be for some people. One is to be a consultant because it's an opportunity to work on different things. I remember when I left active duty from the Navy, my first job was at Booz Allen and they advertised themselves as a bunch of consultants who shared a photocopier machine. And as a result, it's like, you get to work on really interesting stuff. Because as a consultant, I've observed people hire you for one of three things. They want you to do something they don't know how to do, or they don't want to do, or they don't have time to do. I mean, that could even be true for an oil change, right? You might not have time to do your oil change, you might not want to do it, you might not know how, but you go ahead and you drive in, somebody does it for you, and that's great. And so that's kind of a basic service model. But in, in security consulting, it's a little bit broader from that because you've got a whole range of things you can do. But as you started out as one guy, when you say, let go of that rope and fall to the floor and be on your own, was that kind of a scary transition or did you kind of build things up to the point where it was just kind of uh, you had a really safe landing spot with business lined up for you?
1: No, it was very frightening. I was, I was starting a family at the time, so it felt like there was a lot on the line. I had a partnership offer at two public accounting firms. So my opportunity cost was fairly large and I didn't take a single client with me. Sometimes, you know, you you take one or two clients and you start your firm up from that. I had none of that. I, I really started from scratch. I had one client that was willing to take a risk for me with me. And I was like, all right, well, this will pay for a couple months of my mortgage. So I'll give it a shot. But I think. Some of my personality traits lend itself to business. One, one, I would consider myself more of a business person than a cybersecurity person. I'm really good at taking, building systems and processes, including business processes. I like to lead people. I like to serve. So those things kind of lend itself to, to growing a business. So what I found was I was really fortunate in that there was a lot of demand for cybersecurity services. So when I got out there, I was delivering good services. And at first, it was just word of mouth and people would refer me off to the to the next person and the next person and i didn't really change my lifestyle i didn't you know ma- i was i was making decent money but i didn't like go buy a bigger house or anything i just started stowing stuff in the bank really saving up with the goal of building a business out of it and me and my business partner who's also named christian were are we're just in that mentality we really wanted to scale a business self-fund it build uh, scalable practice areas. So it was just a little bit of discipline, doing good work, having a little bit of discipline, willing to take the risk and kind of worked out from there. There really no secret sauce. People always ask, like, what's the secret to starting a business? It's like doing the right thing for a sustained amount of time. <laughs> just keep doing it, do the right thing, and like things kind of work out and have a great market that helps.
0: Yeah, I think you're onto something there. And, and you mentioned something almost in passing, but I think it might also be a critical success factor. And that's a partner with whom yep. you can work well. And uh, tell me a little bit about that. Were you guys like uh, complementary or redundant skills? Were you like two guys back to back in a bar where you're each facing a different direction? Or did you find out that you were kind of both running at the same direction, meaning you had the same strong points, but maybe the same weak points?
1: So me and Christian White, we call him CW. We're we're very different individuals, personality wise So I I do think that we fill gaps. The way we actually met was uh, that Georgia Tech MBA program, they made you have name tags. And the, he was a guy sitting at the the very front row. He's a West Point grad, army officer, straight back. But the name tag says Christian. I'm like, well, this is an easy icebreaker. My name's Christian. So I'll sit next to this guy, start a conversation because I didn't know a single other person in the program. And then pretty much right away, we realized that he was there to start a business. I was there to start a business. And uh, there's a book called Attraction uh, uh, by a guy named Gina Wickman. And he describes leadership relationships at that level as you want a visionary and you want an integrator. The visionary is the person who has the ideas. They're good at speaking, you know, probably not the most tactical person. I kind of fit that role in some ways, whereas CW is a great integrator. So if you're worried about things like who's going to run payroll, who's going to set up the business systems, who's going to do the taxes, he's really good at all that stuff and much more. So I think between the two of us, we filled a lot of gaps for each other and and we're basically on the same page from day one and like what, how we wanted to build the business, why we wanted to do that. And it helped that we had, you know, 18 months to figure it out before we made the leap.
0: That sounds great. Yeah, I know that business schools, now you can specialize in cybersecurity. Uh, they didn't exist back in my day, even as an undergraduate or graduate degree. And uh, even the entrepreneurship, I think, is huge. What do you think was unique in your MBA program on entrepreneurship? as compared to maybe non-entrepreneurship. I mean, when I did my MBA in the 90s, uh, that wasn't available. So I feel like I, I study real well, I, I did real well, I graduated at the top of my class, but I didn't get what I was looking for, which is those last little pieces of information to say, you know, strike off and then change your slope and go up with your small business. So what do you, what do you think that you might've learned in the, in the business school that helped you there?
1: I might be the wrong person to ask. When I first graduated, I was pretty cynical about like the value the MBA program had, honestly. I think me and CW were the only two guys that started a business out of the MBA program. But over time, I've kind of changed my position on that cynicism because I, I realized what it did is when it gave us time, just time to think about it, gain the courage to make the leap, to get to know each other, to establish a foundation, which was essential. That particular program also had uh, an opportunity to pitch the business that you wanted to start. And you you actually had to pitch it to private equity firms. So it was like real guys. And some of them actually wanted to develop a relationship after we uh, uh launched, after we got out of the MBA program. So I think just going through the motions and having really tough conversations with each other and having dedicated time to do that. Like we did a, a two week trip to China that the MBA program made us do it. And just being around each other so much, coming up with the foundations of how we wanted to start a business, developing a relationship honesty, rowing in the same direction. I don't think there would have been any other opportunity in normal life to to develop that kind of partnership and, and business plan outside of that dedicated time. And I think we used it effectively. I know a lot of people who went there and they just wanted to, you know, they just wanted to get a promotion at their job. And there's nothing wrong with that. But they used their time quite quite a bit differently than how me and CW did because we spent two years thinking about this thing that we wanted to create. And upon reflection, I think that made a huge difference for us.
0: Well, that sounds really encouraging, and and, uh, thank you for sharing that because, again, a lot of people look at things such as maybe a master's degree, in particular an MBA, and they go like, well, you know, is it worth the time, the money, the effort? Uh, What I found also is that it makes you conversant in the language of business, and for somebody who perhaps started out highly technical... And then wants to become either an entrepreneur or work their way up to a CISO level where they're actually dealing with other C-level executives. Having the ability to speak in terms of finance and risk and managing the enterprise and global uh, economy, things like that. Uh, that's kind of a different world. And once you kind of poke your head up in there and you, you master that language, you really can't go back. Uh, you, you see the world at a different level, don't you?
1: For sure. That that might be something I took for granted because I had a business degree undergrad as well. But I, I think about this a lot when, when you're talking about a successful executive and specifically a successful CISO. It's not really, you know, what gets you to that level is great subject matter expertise. Like you're good at a compliance framework, you understand security. But what makes a successful executive is often the ability to lead a team, the systems in which you put in place to manage and motivate and to communicate to executives, the ability to put together budgets and understand business objectives and how what you're doing from a security perspective supports that. And those are all very different skills from the day-to-day security skills you need to be successful. And for a lot of people, maybe formal education is the path to that. I've seen others who've just served under great mentors or in the military that acquire those skills. But you have to be able to acquire those skills to be a really successful executive or or CISO for that matter, too. So To your point, yeah, that's probably a good gap to fill.
0: That's some some very good, very wise advice. So thank you for that. So I guess one one last thought then, in terms of your journey to where you are now, when did you and CW decide it was time to hire your first employee, and and what did that person do? So early
1: on, we hired out of necessity. Like it was a pure economic decision. We had too much work to be able to execute. So we hired. Probably our first dozen or so hires were all consultants. We, we never contracted out. We always hired full-time employees, uh, which I think is probably fairly unique in our space. And, and then after that, we did hire some ops people. Uh, like we hired uh, someone, we call our HR department vibes. So we hired someone to do HR. We hired an ops person. And then we pretty much immediately began building this platform, Phalanx, which is a, a platform that we use to manage our security programs for our clients. So um, that, that was how it was. But it was economic reality. And it was scary, by the way. Like you're talking about losing sleep and just being anxious because you, now you know you're on the hook for keeping a business up and running in someone else's livelihood. And I, I would say the first three or four years of the business, I, I mean, I lost a lot of sleep simply because I was always worried about closing enough business to keep all of these people gainfully employed. And then after about four years of doing it consistently and kind of building a sales team and stuff, I, I gained enough confidence where I was like, you know what, we've been doing it for the last four years. We have systems in place. There's some predictability. But I think most people just got to get over that hump, uh, make the jump to hire, but make make it make financial sense.
0: Right. And so you were kind of your own HR department for the first dozen people, it sounds like.
1: Yeah. If there's consultants out there uh, listening, there's a couple of things that we did, right? And this is probably not in my own interest to even share this information, but some of the things we did right is, is we came, pretty much our entire model was based on reoccurring revenue opportunities. So we, we, we really shied away from one-time consulting gigs and looked for stuff that would happen every year. So an annual security assessment, building up mechanisms that, you know, it's a managed service type of thing or audits. That's why we got into that business, even though that was kind of my trade anyway, like SOC 2 audits or ISO audits. You have to do them every year. And I think it's really hard to transition from that hunter-gatherer. Like, yeah, you're doing consulting gigs and then they go away and you have to find the next consulting gig. If you can avoid that and do more reoccurring revenue stuff, that, that is for us part of what, I guess, gave us some confidence to hire people. But it also helped us develop really long-term relationships with our clients because they knew they were in this for a couple of years. They have to do the audit every year. We're trying to give them advisory on how to build a sustainable program, how to build a great compliance program. So at the end of the day, it ended up being a triple win, where it was good for us, but it was also really good for the client. And I think that little tweak that we did early on to build our business around that stuff really helped out.
0: And that and that makes sense, because for those who work, for example, red teams, and you know, my son's a pen tester, and I, I tell him, I said, hey, I'd love to get you in some jobs, but I'm not going to get you back to back. And the reason being is that on a pen test, you're pretty much the client. You're only going to see the world from the perspective of the toolbox of that pen tester. And if it's the same toolbox every six months or however often, you don't get exposed to other viewpoints. So I really recommended mixing it up. But there's some value from the perspective of the audit that you want to have somebody who knows your business who understands what's going on who can effectively go through and ensure that the company is compliant with their own policies as well as external rules and regulations and if you had to train a new auditor every six months or a year well you're going to have all kinds of trouble as a client so really your business model lends itself well to those longer term types of relationships
1: yep and that meant that meant saying no to a lot of stuff early on too like there were some really cool one-off assessments that we said no to because we knew that meant we were going to have to staff up or was going to commandeer all of our time. But then once that went away, we'd have to find the next one. So we've kind of built a whole business model on with organizations that value that long-term relationship. And they they need to truly value it because we're not salespeople. We're not talking anybody into doing anything they don't want to do. But anytime that we see an organization that truly values and will get value from a long-term relationship, and is into that kind of thing. It makes sense for all parties. That's really where we dedicate our effort rather than the one-offs. We have taken one-offs. That's not to say we haven't done that, but just showing the discipline to do that over time. I think looking back on it six or seven years later, I'm glad that we've been disciplined along the way. It's put us in a unique position, but that's not easy to do early on when you need
0: to eat. That's true. And it's hard to fire a customer or even a prospective customer. And yet if it doesn't fit the business model, one of the recipes for failure is trying to make everybody happy, and you can't yeah. do that. Um, you know, you just, you'll run out because everything's a one off. There's no scalability, and a huge amount of bench time in between it, where you've got to pay somebody while they're kind of waiting to get back out in the game again. Yep. You can do that if you're a huge corporation, or for those of us who worked in the big four and a half, as I like to call them, because you never know who's going to go out of business or merge next. Yeah, there's there's some economies of scale there, but. In, in your particular case, I think you, you hit kind of a nice combination. And so it sounds like being able to have the, the opportunity to meet somebody who was complementary in your skill set, that you had the incubation period for your idea in B-School, to be able to hit the ground running in terms of being able to go ahead and get some work in the door, grow that business with a discipline of out you know, focusing on recurring revenue rather than outside one-offs, hiring in people to expand along that same core area, and then finally filling in the infrastructure. If did I kind of get that sequence correctly in terms of what you, you nailed it. I'm right? going to
1: record. I'm going to record that summary, and that'll be my pitch going forward. But that's that's pretty much exactly it. That's the recipe.
0: Well, good. The nice thing is, it's going to be right here on the uh, TradeCraft podcast, so you can go ahead and replay it anytime you like. Well, we're talking about compliance and audits and things such as that. And for a lot of people, they're familiar with maybe one or two types that they've had to do as part of their job. But if we look at the alphabet soup of ISO 27000 series, PCI DSS, GDPR, HIPAA, CCPA, SOC 2, M-O-U-S-E, can we dive a little bit briefly into each one of them and why an organization would probably be using that? Because as you indicated, you're not in sales. You don't walk and ring a doorbell and say, Hey, would you like to do an ISO 27,000 one cert? It could be really good for you. Uh, No, they already have decided that. So any particular order you like, or I could just kind of give them back to you in that order and you can kind of comment on each one.
1: Yeah. I'm happy to comment on each one. I think the good thing is, is it it doesn't matter which, Uh, framework you choose, the reasons for doing them are the same. And there's only three reasons that a company might choose to do any compliance framework. Um, And the reason I like the the compliance world from a business perspective is you're not going to talk anybody into doing compliance. They, They come to you because they have to do compliance or they need to do it. So my job is not to convince them to do compliance. It is to help them navigate that compliance and align it to their business objectives. And the three reasons that companies will do compliance is either they want to reduce risk, so a risk management story. So I'm going to implement ISO 27001 because I want to genuinely reduce my company's risk of a cybersecurity breach or what what have you. The second reason they might do it is revenue generation. So literally, obtaining a certification is between them and doing business with someone they want to do business with. So you take a small SaaS company and they're trying to do business with Bank of America. They'll say, hey, Bank of America told me I have to have a SOC 2 report to do business with them or I'm seeing SOC 2 in all of these contractual requirements. So now my objective is to help that organization navigate SOC 2 so that they can get the revenue that they so desperately need and want. And the third reason that companies might want to do compliance is cost or complexity reduction. You'll see an organization come in and they'll say, look, I have to comply with SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, PCI, My engineers are burdened because they're getting audited nonstop and they can't even develop a product. I'm tired of being audited. I'm fatigued. We have high turnover. Now my job is to come in there and help them reduce that complexity. I'll I'll say, hey, look, let's implement the single framework strategy. Let's harmonize all of these audits into one security program. That way that your team's not overburdened. They have to take one screenshot and it meets the requirements of all these different audits. And voila, you've, you've saved a ton of effort and cost associated with your compliance program. So those are generally the reasons that companies do that and going into it with that perspective and helping my job. I just want to understand why they want to do it. That way I can adjust my technique to help them accomplish that business objective. That's, that's generally why they do it.
0: Mm-hmm. And that makes good sense. So there's, there's three different requirements for it. And, you know, usually it's imposed upon somebody. You can go ahead and achieve some cost savings. You can reduce some of the complexity and reduce risk, of course, because that's ultimately what a lot of these frameworks are all about, if you follow them correctly. Now, you did mention something that I I took a note on. You said this single framework. And that's sort of that elusive holy grail out there that says, if I've got this whole range of these different compliance requirements, what is that ultimate single framework that allows me to get a check in the box across the board? Or is that Mm -hmm. more kind of a notional uh, approach?
1: Yeah. So, we literally built one out over time so i, I mentioned our, our platform phalanx so we've kind of built a harmonized control framework that helps you comply with multiple different uh compliance frameworks and we will execute that so we kind of have a playbook to help someone implement a single framework strategy but generally um they it is all the, a, a very similar set of requirements uh, in terms of you have to have an information security program you have to have governance structures in place and you could typically harmonize against a set of principles to meet multiple compliance requirements. Now there's a ton of nuances. Like, for example, sometimes the scopes are different between compliance requirements. My SOC2 scope is over one product, but my ISO scope is over another. So that presents some challenges. ISO has a couple very unique uh, requirements. Like they have something called an information security management system. So you have to, yep, so that's that's unique to it sock has a system description. It has slightly different audit requirements. FedRAMP is over, uh, like you have to do like GovCloud or have a very, uh, very, very highly secured system and they have a system security plan. So all of them have unique compliance requirements. But when you talk about the principles to implement, you can typically harmonize those pretty well. And then depending on how complex your organization is and how many products you have and business units, it gets even more complex. But generally speaking, you can find ways to have, Very, very significant cost savings and complexity reduction if you're pragmatic about how you implement a security and compliance program.
0: Now, it sounds that given all those different requirements that could be harmonized, it's possible to potentially over-engineer your program. That is to say, when I try to tell people about reducing risk and the concept of residual risk, if you have a level of risk today and you're given a certain amount of resources to lower that risk to an acceptable level, Once you've reached that acceptable level, if you still have money in the bank, do you keep correcting below that level? Or do you say, wait a minute, I've met the objective. Let's go use these funds for something else.
1: I've never seen a compliance program drive someone to their acceptable level of risk in of itself. Right. Um, And they're definitely not exceeding the requirements for sure. I think compliance is effective because. It gives CISOs a mandate. So now they can take it to their executive team and they can communicate why they need to do something. It's a helpful way to have frameworks of best practices, but it's really bad at driving business decisions based on unique objectives. Um, So like, for example, I wouldn't take SOC 2 and expect it to reduce my risk to such a level that my risk is now at an acceptable level. It it just isn't going to happen like that. You're going to have to do like a risk assessment based on your own risk assessment, treat all of your assets in a unique way and implement a security program. So those two are almost distinct conversations. I would consider compliance as a tool. It's just a tool. It's a framework. It's a way of talking. It's a language to communicate with the executives. It's objectives to meet, but it's not It's not really a risk management philosophy necessarily, although they, they kind of talk to each other, depending on who's telling you to get the compliance, I guess. But they're just kind of two different objectives, I guess.
0: And that's a good point, because I've, I say in a lot of my talks that compliance is not security. In fact, compliance is a C minus. It's a minimum passing grade. It gets the auditors off your back. And might get legal off your back. But the danger is it might get management from backing you because they say, OK, we're compliant. We're good. Well, compliant organizations get hacked all the time because it's not excellence. So for organizations that have gone through some compliance exercise, they have whatever golden ticket they're supposed to get. Here's my PCI DSS, here's my SOC 2, whatever. And then management says, okay, we're not going to fund you anymore for more security initiatives because you're compliant. How do you communicate that effectively to management to say, but this is just a starting point? Or is that tend to be a problem and organizations get stalled out until they do get popped, at which point then the funds come available?
1: So I will say that I think one of the shortcomings of CISOs, generally speaking, um, that we fall in the trap of doing is feeling like we need to convince the business to do security stuff. And what what I would advocate instead is like attaching yourself to the business's biggest business objectives and being able to help the business understand how what you're doing from a security perspective is gonna help them meet their objectives ignore compliance ignore security so for example if you know that your business wants to access to a certain market they want to go to the eu they want to sell a product there well then maybe i'm going to have a conversation about gdpr and what it takes to to do that if they want to bring a new product to the healthcare space well maybe i want to have a conversation about hipaa and multi-factor authentication and incident response and stuff like that so If I can really attach myself to the business's biggest objectives, I can hone my approach from an information security perspective to give the business exactly what it needs to succeed. Now sometimes, yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah, so
0: now what you're saying is that from security, we're going to enable the business, or as a friend of mine likes to say, we're the business of revenue protection. We protect the business uh, to make sure it can do whatever it needs to do. And it sounds like you're aligned with that concept to say, hey, security is not here to be a cost center, but rather it's to be able to allow the organization to proceed into a particular business area without undue risk of being able, you know, revenue loss, information loss, et cetera. Would you agree with that?
1: I to a certain extent, yes. Now, I I hate anything that's branded as a call center because no business spends money for no reason. There's a reason that they're doing the things they do. Now, maybe it's not clearly attached to revenue generation or anything like that, but there's a reason. It's sustainability. It's uh, you know insurance. There's a reason they're doing information security. So I think being able to articulate those reasons in a way that resonates with the business is a is a huge communication challenge. Because a lot of times the business doesn't speak the language of frameworks or compliance or technical jargon or details. It just doesn't hit home with them. But what the business does understand is you want to accomplish this mission, and here's how information security helps you do that. And here are the potential risks of not doing that, and then help them with that decision making criteria. Obviously, the conversations are much more nuanced than that, but having the patience, building the trust and the rapport with the leadership team, so that they'll listen to you and take you seriously and understand that you have their best interest at heart and that you're someone you're the voice of reason and they need to listen to you that's that's the trick to me because so often as he says we come into an organization we do a gap assessment we bring them the results and we say look these are all our gaps we need to fix those gaps and it's kind of intuitive to us why we need to do that but we didn't ask the business a single question we didn't ask them what business are you in? Which markets do you serve? What's your objectives? What's the biggest things you're doing this year? How are we spending our money? What are our margins? Uh, what's our people issues? What are our biggest continuity risks? Like there's a whole slew of stuff. So sometimes we need to ask those questions, understand a level set with the business and earn their trust. And that will allow us to earn a seat at the table where we can have conversations about some of the things that we want to have conversations. And there's really no shortcut to that. You can't shortcut that trust.
0: Now, when you do a number of assessments, you've probably done over a thousand of them in the history of your business. You've run into a number of CISOs, and you've recently published kind of an e-book called The Five CISO Archetypes, Clarify Your Role, Align to Business Objectives, and Be Happy Doing It. And I thought it was a rather interesting view because you've addressed this for current and aspiring security leaders. What was it that caused you to kind of put pen to ink or fingers to keyboard and try to come up with yet another way to slice and dice a population of professionals?
1: Yeah, one of the things that I like to do is, is to categorize things to better understand them. It, it helps me train people on it, like my own consultants on our team. It helps me kind of think through who I'm interacting with and why they might be the way they are. And uh, we have a virtual CISO team that comes in and stands up uh, security organizations, or we partner with the CISO to help them accomplish their mission. And one of the things I started realizing is, is there are these different security leader types out there. And if I can understand who that security is, how they operate, who they are, then I can better serve them as a consultant. So we, we noticed like there's an executive archetype who's a great communicator, good visionary, great leader, but maybe lacks the technical skills. So if I'm interacting with them, I want to help support them on the technical side. There's the engineer who's kind of the opposite of the executive, who is the technical person, wants to go and implement, but hates communicating, hates doing budgets, hates kind of governance stuff. So I can support them there. So just as a thought exercise, one day we started whiteboarding these different like characters or archetypes that we were dealing with. And we narrowed it down to five. And I was like, wait a second. These are like the five CISO archetypes. And so we wrote an ebook about it. And it started off as a lunch and learn that we'd give internally here just to kind of train consultants on personality types. So you can examine yourself, your own strengths and weaknesses, and also potentially examine the clients that we're serving. And someone was like, you should write an ebook out of that. That's pretty cool. So I, so I did. But that's where the initial idea came from, just trying to better serve the clients that we're working
0: with. Well, that's pretty neat. So let's kind of walk through those five. You mentioned the first two, but let's take a look at, for example, like strengths and weaknesses of the executive. Uh, when you find someone, you kind of outline that as a great leader, aligns with the business objectives. But kind of a little caveat in there must be supported by doers. So what are the um, the pros and cons of running into a executive CISO archetype? And then we'll go down each of the other four as well.
1: Sure. So so an executive often does really good at um, highly complex organizations, cross-functional organizational leadership, leading and inspiring others, communicating to the board. They're, they're good at a lot of those things. But if you've ever worked with a visionary or an executive, they're, they're Terrible at doing things. They're never going to format an Excel spreadsheet. They're probably never going to do the detailed analysis it takes to implement a SOC. Like, those are just things that they aren't great at. So, what we recommend is hire for it. Uh, It's it's all about who, not what. So, who's going to do that for them? Um, So, they're really bad at those types of things. So, they need to build a team around themselves. And, And one of the things that we've noticed is that CISOs often don't do a great job hiring. They hire good people, but they don't hire people that fill their gaps. So for the executive, if you know you're a great visionary, maybe hire that compliance guru, maybe hire that technical subject matter expert or that SOC analyst, because those are going to fill a lot of your gaps.
0: So an executive then might work well in a larger organization where you step in and there's already a pre-existing set of people, the mission's well-defined, and you can step in because you can communicate well with the other C-level staff, you can push things, and ultimately somebody gets stuff done but of course you indicated the potential danger there is is that you know even a smaller one a startup or you know significant turnover it's just a matter of being able to have that big picture approach recognizing that unless you're also dedicating into the details either personally or by hiring for someone to do that that the program's going to run into some real trouble yep a, so
1: a good example a good example there might be um and we'll go into the engineer so a lot of our clients are high growth tech companies it's kind of a product first company move fast and break things type of thing, very low tolerance for bureaucracy. I've seen them hire executives because they interview well, but they don't really do well at that organization because it's too flat. There's just not the need for that executive presence. And maybe what they need is a really good engineer, an engineer archetype who understands product, understands SDLC, can communicate the technical issues, especially at these startups that are heavily engineering oriented. You have to earn the respect of other engineers for them to really listen to you. And they're just really good at that organization because they speak the language, they operate within that culture, they get the, the ins and outs of the org. So that would be a case where like if I'm a business and I'm hiring a, a CISO, I might have a great candidate come down that is an executive and be very tempted to hire them. But if I do a little self-analysis, maybe I'm like, you know what, I really need an engineer archetype here. That's who we should be hiring.
0: So we've got an executive, we've got the engineer, and the next one you mentioned is a GRC guru. Yep. Tell me a little bit about the GRC guru.
1: This is probably my bias because I work with a lot of compliance programs, but I've noticed so many CISOs, with the, re- the reality is w- of what they do is they're a security compliance executive. They're pretty much you know thinking about FedRAMP or SOC2 or ISO programs. They're really heavily involved in the compliance program, but they're very effective at that. They're probably not securing a product. They're not uh, building out a security operations center or man- fielding incident response. They're really all about managing and maintaining that compliance program. And there, there's a huge swath of CISOs or security executives that fit that role. And what I realized is that's the GRC guru. They weren't hired or successful at that organization because they were a technical SME. They were they're really good at navigating compliance. It's also interesting because if you were to hire an engineer or a builder or someone who's highly technical to manage the compliance program, they would probably hate that job and be very, very unsatisfied. So that's another thing. Is when we're coaching clients who want to fill the CISO position, they're like, uh, who should we hire? How should we hire it? And they really have their mindset where they want this, uh, this executive or this this product engineer as the security executive, and and I'll level set with them. And I'm like, man, you you have like four or five compliance frameworks you have to deal with. You better find someone who's very comfortable and energized by managing a compliance program. So they'll shift their thinking a little bit and hire the GRC guru. That, that tends to be who we interact with a lot is that GRC
0: group. And I can see, for example, somebody doing a lot of federal government work or particularly a DOD contractor having a GRC guru in there would probably be a real plus up because you've got all these different compliance regimes that are out there. And if you say, yay, I love this stuff, they're probably going to be thrilled with that.
1: Yeah. I mean, even startups, startups are the worst about this or any high growth tech company. They don't necessarily have to be a startup, but a lot of startups want to hire an engineer because that's their bent. They want to hire an engineer who knows all about product, but their mission is to get SOC 2 and ISO certified. And they're all hands on deck to do that because it's a revenue generation strategy. They're like, Hey, all these big companies are making me do that. I got to get certified. And if they fall in the trap of hiring an engineer when they really needed a GRC guru, then, then they're not going to experience a lot of success. So this is one of those things where you got to kind of analyze, you got to analyze the true need of the business before you make that hiring decision or you build out a team.
0: That's a good point. So now we've got the executive, the engineer, the GRC guru. And next is the technician. So what's the technician? And then how does the technician differ from the engineer?
1: Yeah. So I would put, technician in quotations, because I, I don't think this is a true CISO role. It's, it's definitely an honorable mention. But often what we'll see is a director of IT or a CTO or some other executive that's in a technical spot take on security as an additional duty. This is very common. So anyone who does that, I would consider the technician, the classic you know, IT department owner that takes over the, the security function. Everyone knows that there's some challenges with that, and that there's they lack independence. They maybe, you know, they're building it and then they're assessing their own workforce security issues. So there's problems with that. But the reality is, many organizations do not have a choice. They they can't afford economically, or or their business model doesn't allow for them to hire a standalone security professional. So these technicians, these CTOs and CIOs are taking on this additional duty to keep security prioritized for the organization. And that's just what they're required to do. So I included those. We run into those all the time
0: too. And the last of the five types was the builder. When you say a master of getting programs off the ground. Tell me a little bit about the builder. What makes a builder work out well? And then when would a builder be kind of unhappy?
1: Yeah, the, the builder, I think most of you CISOs, if you're a virtual CISO, are, are often builders. But they're really just someone who can come in and they're masters at taking a program from A to B. And they're just great at organizational change, high energy. They kind of have a playbook to get a security program off and running. Usually have a huge swath of skill sets. They communicate well, but are also technical. They're just awesome. But where organizations sometimes fall in a trap is you want to hire this builder as your CISO and build a whole team around them and, and have dreams of them being there for 10 years. But the reality is the builder, they want a job hop. They want the next new challenge. They want to secure the next business unit to go to the next organization. So you'll see a lot of CISOs that have 18 to 24 months of tenure. And you look at the companies they've left, they've left them in great shape. They've built program after program, solving hard problems. But what they're really bad at is maintenance. You know, they they can't build a team, maintain a program over five or six years. And that's a big challenge for them. And the biggest danger for organizations is if you hire in this really charismatic builder, and you build a team around them and then they leave that's that's a huge gap because they've built they've all these careers are attached to this individual and that's a huge huge uh problem for the organization so i've seen that happen time and time again so just keep that in mind too maybe you're maybe you want that visa so to get the program off out the, out the ground or you know h- however that works out there's a lot of strengths but also that one big weakness i i'm kind of a builder uh historically so i can see this in myself i would probably not be the guy that you want to hire as your full-time, lifetime CISO. But that also is why I'm probably an entrepreneur. <laughs> so I can, I can do lots of things and have lots of change. So we, we identified that one.
0: Sounds good. Yeah, I remember Cliff Stoll, it said, you know, the first time you do something is science. The second time is it's engineering. And, and the third time it's just maintenance. And he's not excited about maintenance. He wants to do science. He wants to go and invent and do things. And that seems to fit that, that archetype really well. So you've got the five archetypes that you've indicated, the executive, the engineer, the GRC guru, the technician, sort of a kind of CISO perhaps, and then the builder. Now for an individual who wanted to say, well, okay, this sounds sort of interesting, but is there something like a Myers-Briggs test that I could take to get a feel for what my preferences are? Have you put something together for that?
1: I have. So. When when I wrote the ebook around the five CISO archetypes, there were like a few resources that I realized were were mandatory to make this thing work. So if you go to our website, you can look up RISC 360, five CISO archetypes on Google and it'll it'll send you to a page and you can download all the stuff. But the three resources we have, one is a self-assessment. So if you're kind of wondering just for fun where you might sit on the scale, you can take the self-assessment and it'll tell you where your tendencies tend to be. The second piece of it, which I think is arguably even more important, Is once you know yourself and you know who you are, it's important you start building a team around yourself to support your strengths and weaknesses. So we put out the CISO RACI diagram so that you can start thinking through that. What are all the positions of a security organization that you need to fill and who do you need to fill fill them with? So it's a thinking exercise for that. It's called the CISO RACI diagram. And the third one is to understand what your business cares about. So it's a similar assessment for your business to understand what type of CISO you need to be to support their business objectives. So is their objective risk management, revenue generation, or or cost containment? And if you put those three things together, hopefully you can understand what does my business care about? Who am I? And then who do I need to surround myself with to meet those business objectives? And that's the goal of the, the document pack that we put together.
0: Well, it sounds like a really valuable, and for those who haven't heard the acronym RACI, responsible, accountable, consulted, informed. It's basically how do you get people involved in different things, and usually if you're the person who's accountable, you're the person on the hook, and that's something you can't delegate away. You can delegate responsibility. You can even delegate your authority to somebody else, but at the end of the day, you can't go to the boss and say, well, don't blame me because my subordinate didn't do their job right. It, it's her fault or his fault or something like that. Doesn't, that's not leadership and it doesn't work. So we'll put links to these in our show notes so that our listeners can go ahead and get to that site, take a look at the seesaw archetypes and then also that self-assessment. So we're, any other last thoughts that you'd like to have as we're kind of getting close to wrapping up the show here? Something you'd like to leave our listeners with?
1: No, this was great. I hope that everybody can check that stuff out. We have some talks coming up. We're on other podcasts. We try to put out a lot of uh, thought leadership just like this. So if, if you're trying to get up to speed on SOC 2 or ISO or security topics, we literally have a whole YouTube channel of free content where we talk about stuff like that. We have white papers on our website where we just give information away like this. In fact, our GRC platform has a free version that you can do a whole gap assessment against different frameworks and it'll spit out a, like a gap assessment report. So we we really do try to give a ton back and hopefully we get a little bit in return. So if you're looking for resources out there and thought leadership, we, we make a big effort to develop that internally and hopefully it's helpful for the community.
0: Well, that's awesome, and appreciate your contribution to to the community as well. That's great. Christian uh, Hyatt, uh, Risk 360, it's been great having you on the show. And for our listeners out there, thanks for listening to another CISO Tradecraft program. We hope you've enjoyed learning about the information that we've discovered, some of the entrepreneurship, some of the ideas of the CISO archetypes, and, of course, some information on compliance and the different programs and the like. And if you like the show, please share it with somebody else. Like us on your podcast platform and let everybody else know that CISO Tradecraft is probably good for their career as well. So until the next time, this is G. Mark Hardy. Thanks again for being a listener, and stay safe out there.